वेलकम टू अर्थ अनर्थ वी आर योर होस्ट आकाश एंड रोचर अर्थ अनर्थ इज अ फॉर्टनाइटली पॉडकास्ट वेर वी डी कंस्ट्रक्ट थीम्स मूवीज एंड टीवी शोज टू डिस्कस इकोनॉमिक्स पॉलिटिक्स एंड साइंस बिहार This is the second part of our conversation with Prina. You will find the first part where we talked about uh, origin symptoms uh, and preventive measures related to coronavirus and the concept of R not right below this part episode on the app that you listen to your podcast on. In this second part, we cover regulations around testing and vaccine development, conspiracy theories around possible cures. lockdowns and their economic impact as well as supply chain and how to get out of this economic crisis that has been induced by the coronavirus one of the scenes we noticed how a leading scientist who was able to separate the culture eventually was very frustrated because the center for disease control decided for some reason to allow virus research and development only for bsl4 labs and above in another similar scene a vaccine development researcher injects herself with the vaccine under trial in order to expedite the trial process so these are just a few examples of how regulations may adversely affect progress there are many such regulations in real life too for example let me give you the case of uh, regulations in the united states which is actually a country with the lesser number of regulations compared to india so in the united states there are restrictions on doctors practicing across state lines and the state restrictions on telemedicine the same thing Be- basically even doctors cannot pro- practice across state lines and there are restrictions on uh, on telemedicine being used in another state so there are certificate of need rules for hospitals to add beds there are rules restricting online higher education across states rules require requirements for certain professionals to work in offices only and hours of service regulations for truck drivers and this list goes on and on so akash i know you have a strong opinion on regulation and the hurdle it tree hurdles it creates and you even co-authored an article on regulation specific to testing in india would you like to discuss how regulatory hurdles have impeded this fight against coronavirus Yeah, Richard, you correctly uh, mentioned many of these uh, regulatory hurdles uh, that impeded the fight against coronavirus in the U.S. In India, it was not just the same story, but actually things were even worse. The ICMR licensing rules killed the private market for testing. And if you look at it, when when the coronavirus outbreak happened, what ICMR did was that it it basically put a blanket ban on all the private uh, testing. uh instruments uh which were uh, not certified by US FDA or the European agency and uh, it turned out that there was just one company across india which had that license and in a week basically when they realized it they said that okay turn in your testing kits to us and we'll take a week and then we'll release the results only only the kits which are 100% uh, which identify 100% true positive and 100% true negatives will be allowed now there were there were a host of companies which uh, basically uh, you know got licensed 
and uh, they were able to um, make the cut. But what it did was that it essentially, you know, took away two weeks, two very important weeks in India's fight against coronavirus. Then after, even after that, basically all the labs which will do the testing across India using those testing kits, they had to be certified by ICMR. So it was all a huge mess. Um, I, I think, I mean, there is quite a lot to be said here. Uh, I have written an article, as you mentioned, uh, using both empirical data and um, even the economic theory. So I, I think quite a lot can be read there as well. And uh, if you look at Germany, which which basically decentralized its whole uh, health system, and uh, it had uh, it, it basically didn't really require any private company to uh, you know for their tests to be certified uh, because they could just uh, grade it as uh, um, you know low risk and they could just sell it in an open market. Germany did very well compared to both India and the US to fight the coronavirus situation. And it was precisely because of one reason, because they were able to test at a huge scale. And that was made possible only because decentralized systems are likely to respond more effectively to pandemics like coronavirus than systems that depend on central directives. Here, case in point is both India and uh, US. Yes, Akash, I think you've covered the regulatory hurdles involved in testing very well. But I think, yes, there are similar hurdles that are there for uh, vaccine development as well. But before we move to that, how about, like, Srinath, explain us how vaccines actually work? Uh, Yeah, sure. Vaccines work by boosting the immune system's response against the pathogen, which is virus in this case. And there are actually uh, different strategies used to make vaccines. And the most common and the conventional strategy used is to administer a weakened form of the virus or attenuated form of the virus. And this can be done either orally or even through nasal openings or through injections. And this won't be lethal enough to cause death, but there could be a few symptoms, but that's it. And overall, the outcome would be our immune system uh, recognizes this weakened virus as a foreign body and develops antibodies against it. So if one gets exposed to the virus the next time, then the immune system can fight off against it more effectively and essentially ward off the disease. That's how it works. And these days there are more forms of more like different strategies used like DNA-based vaccines and RNA-based vaccines and even uh, viral vectors are used. The famous one, Chadoxin, also is a viral vector-based vaccine. They... uh, take a similar approach where the end result is somehow they boost the immune system's response against the particular virus or bacteria. That's great. But uh, why is it taking so much time to develop a vaccine against coronavirus? I, Richard, I think that you did some course on uh, vaccine development. So could you, could you please elaborate to us? Could you please explain... Uh, the reason why when everybody is waiting for a vaccine to come save us, why is it not happening so quickly? Yes, Akash. Uh, yeah, I actually did a course on biotechnology in healthcare, which is a part of the biotechnology department in our college. And one of the topics that was covered was how drug and vac- drugs and vaccines are developed um, in clinically. So basically, vaccine development takes a long time because there are many, 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 many safety and quality standards to be met. 
before a regulatory body approve the vaccine. So ideally, there are a standard set of steps to be followed for vaccine development. The initial stages are exploratory, and the regulation and oversight increases as the vaccine makes its way through the process. The first is the academic research and exploratory stage, as I said. Then comes the preclinical stage, and then there are phase one trials, first phase two trials, phase three trials. Means the number of subjects uh, who are being uh, who the vaccine is being tested on is gradually increased, and placebo groups are added. And after all these phases are completed, then supply lines are built to you know ensure factories are set up and manufacturing is in place. So it's a long process. We have after all these phases, you have to build factories, manufacturing. There's approval, there's distribution, there's a long lot of things, and generally. This takes a long, long time, a very long time. Like if you go by traditional knowledge, and if you don't go through the supposed pandemic speed, a vaccine for coronavirus would have taken approximately around twenty thirty-five to twenty thirty-six to come through. But, but um, officials like Dr. Anthony Fauci, the top infectious disease expert on in the United States administration, uh, estimated a vaccine could arrive in. Around eighteen twenty months. Well, of course, um, this vaccine um, would be called, according to the National Academy of Sciences, uh, a vaccine that is moving at pandemic speed, which will have an overlapping timeline of all these phases that I mentioned earlier. And a lot of scientists agree that if we do it the conventional way, there's no way we are going to reach the timeline of eighteen months. And even if we do, there'll be there could be a lot of uh, other issues like side effects and Other causes that are not mentioned, which generally covered in phase four trials, which are optional but are done to increase, uh, to decrease public scrutiny about the vaccine. So as you can see, there are lots and lots of stages involved in vaccine, and each and every stage has to be approved by the regulatory body so that you can proceed to the next one. So yeah, it takes a long, long time. So we see that in the movie, basically there's this uh, unscientific cure called forsythia. it's uh, actually a hoax medicine uh, that's uh, claimed to be able to treat the mev uh, virus uh, we also have some equivalence or basically some comparisons when it comes to the coronavirus case in the real life uh, actually when prince charles was treated uh, not treated but basically he you know he got better uh, and uh, he was tested negative for coronavirus uh, Uh, say two three weeks after he was tested positive, uh, India's Ayush Minister, Shripad Nayak claimed that he was treated using a homeopathy and Ayurveda drug. Uh, now, uh, we basically became a but but of the jokes because uh, his office, Prince Charles' office, basically confirmed that there was no such treatment. Uh, it's funny because India is the only country in the world which has a ministry for alternative medicines. and it has clubbed all these alternative medicines together which have nothing to do with each other uh, ayurveda yoga yunani uh, then uh, naturopathy and uh, homeopathy and siddha as well so uh, let's leave that out a bit and then uh, let's talk about the more talk about drug which is hydroxychloroquine because trump tweeted about it so srinath is hydroxychloroquine a real drug does it really work and uh, does it work in the case of uh, coronavirus is there evidence enough for us to believe that 
well, you can't exactly compare hydroxychloroquine with forsythia kind of drugs because forsythia is just a random tonic solution that Jude Law's character made up as a cure. It's a hoax. And it doesn't even have any medicinal value as such, even in the movie. But uh, hydroxychloroquine is not like that. It definitely has some medicinal value uh, for malaria. It has been, it is actually an approved drug for malaria. But uh, repurposing this drug for uh, COVID-19 treatment is where the problem lies. Uh, so, and as you are, to answer your question, as of now, there is no consensus saying that HCQ treats COVID-19 patients. And uh, rather, it has a lot of undesirable side effects like nausea, headache, twitching, and it even causes confusion and other nervous problems. And uh, you can also develop rashes after uh, consuming it. So basically, you're better off without taking hydroxychloroquine in the first place. And uh, recently, ICMR also did a study on HCQ to uh, explore its uses as a prophylactic, as in a preventive drug that you take before even you get infected. But uh, that study was not uh, convincing either. So there's no strong evidence to suggest the role of HCQ as a prophylactic either. So at this point, it's just like any other controversial uh, hoax drug and it has no use as such. And yet it's surprising that so many doctors in India are prescribing it as if it's paracetamol and or on any other normal drug. So that's something worrisome that should be taken care of. Well, Sheenath, if there are so obvious problems with hydroxychloroquine, why is it famous in the first place? There is this French physician called uh, Didier Rault and uh, he published a faulty paper showing that HCQ actually works very well. And uh, the scientific approach that he took was actually the exact opposite of how one should do epidemiological studies. It is funny that he doesn't even believe in statistics and randomized controlled trials, which is the fundamental of doing any epidemiological study. And there were a lot of faults, but just to mention one of them, uh, the age group of the, uh, the, age, the median age of the group, which was given hydroxychloroquine, was much lesser than the median age of the control group. And obviously we know that younger population have some sort of uh, resistance against COVID against COVID-19. So this is one major fault, obviously. And he published this paper in a journal where he's the editor himself. And obviously that is a really shoddy practice and the paper is actually now retracted. But then that's where all this, this drug particularly got a lot of attention and then people just held on to it as if it were a fact. So let's go back to Forsythia. Forsythia is a homeopathy drug. Uh, Srinath, you are studying uh, biological sciences, biological engineering. So what's your opinion of homeopathy as a whole? <laughs> well, okay. It is like, in my opinion, it is just a placebo drug that uses the fund of time heals things. So it would work for generally for mild things such as fever or common cold, where you get better on your own after some time. But obviously you can't, uh, rely on homeopathy for major diseases like cancer or even for an infectious disease like COVID-19 for that matter, where an actual treatment is required. So that's my opinion or my two cents on homeopathy. Well, even though homeopathy is in general a very scientifically questionable practice, it's really prevalent in India. And Akash, do you know why that may be the case or that is the case actually? Yeah, Richard, I don't really have a problem with uh, an unscientific practice being popular. 
to be honest faith or religion in many cases is an unscientific practice but it's very popular the problem comes when the government supports an unscientific practice as if you know it's uh, it's it's basically something which works uh, and here in this case definitely it has to do with it it has to do with you know uh, conditions which are related to health in india as i mentioned earlier that there is an ayush ministry and homeopathy comes under it i think we would be better off you know uh, making a separate ministry for maybe ayurveda uh, yoga and the other indian traditional practices because for one homeopathy is not indian it's german another thing more important because the origin doesn't really matter to me uh, another thing is that it's definitely as sinath explained it's unscientific and it really cannot even be that even the tests uh, can really not be done and uh, there's no evidence that most of these drugs work it's sort of a placebo effect now last year in 2019 a whopping 2000 crore rupees from the budget was spent on homeopathy the government supports homeopathic colleges the government supports the education of all these people who come out with a degree uh, which is called bhms uh, if i'm not mistaken bachelor of homeopathy and that's yes, done yes. through government colleges now when government is putting its stamp over such a thing definitely it's you know it's going to build sort of a trust among people and it's it's bound to be popular on the other hand we uh people who have trained themselves uh using uh, basically working trained themselves working with a doctor even they are not allowed to practice say uh, uh say uh, medicine because it's it's considered that you really need a four year or five year degree to practice medicine so i think i i think if there is a government intervention in this case here that should be revoked that should really uh, i i'm i would not advocate doing a blanket ban on homeopathy but definitely i i mean i am all for removing all the government support to homeopathy yes akash and totally i i think health is a very very serious issue and supporting unscientific practice in terms of health i think is a very big concern for the public should be a very big concern for the public though about the religion i think the indian constitution allows the state to support partially support give financial support to religious schools and finance religious buildings yeah yeah so, and also control yes exactly gosh i just wanted to add a small point here i totally agree with your view on uh, homeopathy but uh, i personally think that ayurveda should be removed from these other forms of medicines because i uh, i see ayurveda as actually having a potential because if proper research is done Uh, by looking for active ingredients in medicinal plants like plants with medicinal values and extracting uh, chemicals or molecules which could potentially have a medicinal value that can treat diseases then that should be totally be used and there are several labs even in our very own department biotech department where people uh, are trying to do this so that kind of a culture should be developed and uh, that aspect of ayurveda must be given more emphasis on so yes rina basically i agree um there's one one more important reason i think why ayurveda has not really been uh, you know able to take off or i'll say that scientifically establish itself and that is uh, the conundrum of intellectual property rights 
because there is no incentive for a private company to do such an extensive research because uh, there would be a whole lot of uh, hangama when uh, uh, when basically they have to patent something that they just validated because people will you know come out and say that oh hey this is our ancient practice how can you patent it which is all all fine but the problem is it's that's why i'm saying i don't have an answer to it but th- there is a conundrum that if they are not able to patent it they'll definitely not invest so much of uh, r&d on it well yeah that's a problem for sure i totally agree with that so ruchir we see a lot of people fighting over supplies and food in this movie but uh, we didn't really see that in the real life in context of covid-19 all that much matlab i don't remember any news ki uh, there would have been you know some sort of a riot that broke out because of supply shortage uh to be honest in many of these supermarkets even in the us and in india as well uh, definitely when uh, when there was a panic there was some sort of a panic buying but then shelves were back filled again maybe next day or next to next day but if we look at uh, this holistically we definitely see that there's a problem economy has been hit hard so what what do you think is the way out what has what approach has india taken yes akash even i remember in the initial days i was really scared about you know some civil unrest or riots happening because of the massive uh, supply shortage which would affect the uh, daily wage earners and it actually there was i think in very in the very beginning there was a riot in surat uh, or somewhere in gujarat and i was really scared that it could grow big but it was controlled coming to how the government has responded to the crisis and how what the approach has been so the fiscal stimulus that the government has uh, introduced has you know taken more uh, has more emphasis on the supply side and very less on the demand side and i feel that is exactly of what, the opposite of what should have been done so let me break it down the fiscal stimulus is actually difficult to discern because the package is neither clear not transparent about the cost to be borne by the government in each component on may 12 the government announced announced a relief package of about 20 trillion dollars uh, and which was which they said would be about 10% of the country uh, about the 10% of the country's gdp so out of this about 3 trillion dollars would go to msmes for credit for loans without collateral so this was a very clear push towards the supply side where the government was trying to give access to easy credit for those uh, for the to the msmes though they didn't really seem to be happy about the response coming to the important point of this stimulus that was provided uh, firstly there are of course different estimates by uh, financial analysts suggesting that the fiscal stimulus is in the range of 0.7 to 1.3% of the gdp another very important point of the stimulus provided about 30% is a drawdown of the on the existing funds available with the state governments and existing budget provisions thus the effective stimulus is in terms of extra resources provided by the government is only actually 60% of what they say it is its contribution to demand, domestic demand will be minuscule given that private final consumer expenditure in india is about 60% of the gdp uh, it is clear that the design of this package seeks to refocus on the supply side with an emphasis to providing liquidity uh, rather than on the demand side by stepping up government expenditure the stress on the demand side while neglecting the uh, sorry the stress on the supply side while neglecting the demand side shows a kind of a flawed understanding of economics in the crisis and 
so in even in normal circumstances we all know that the speed of adjustment on the supply side is much slower compared to the demand side and at present if there is little or no increase in demand supply responses will be slower than usual of course because the the suppliers or the producers would not wish to pile up on inventories of unsold goods hence i think the government ought to take an approach uh, or provide a stimulus which is more focused on the demand side um yeah the, i mean uh, i concur i think there is another bigger problem with uh, basically a supply side solution and that problem i think has to do with the fact you know that uh, a lot of this money when you hand it over in form of, subs- of a subsidy to companies or even msmes uh, it it basically ends up with people who are politically very connected so uh, the, and that has something to do with you know public choice economics and uh, that is something that we discussed in our panchayat episode so people who are interested could go listen to it there um but uh, richard demand uh, you talked about demand side uh, you know stimulus of sorts so what is demand side stimulus how do we do it Yes, Akash. So one particular uh, way of providing demand-side stimulus could be through direct cash benefits and direct cash or direct cash payments, not benefits as such. So the log like and it has it is a practice that has been uh, uh, that has actually happened in a lot of countries like Canada, US, Hong Kong, Japan, and Thailand, where they provided cash relief directly to the uh, to the demand side and to the to everyone who was affected by the crisis on especially the daily wage earners coming to direct to give you an example so as i mentioned countries like canada us hong kong japan have followed this policy canada is already providing uh, 2000 canadian dollars for four months to those who have lost their jobs are sick or have to stay at home in the united states eligible people apply for a one time payment of 1200 dollars which was a big news back then and it gained a lot of popularity in on twitter as well in hong kong they are providing a cash handout of about 10000 hong kong dollars for each permanent resident age 18 or and above on the other hand on in india there has been no new scheme as such that was announced the original financial package uh, financial stimulus that was announced way back even before may i think in that stimulus they mentioned that each woman was to be given 500 rupees each woman who who had a janthan account of course and Thousand rupees to senior citizens, poor widows, and the disabled. It also tried to hike the payment for Manrega. So, most of the relief in India, as such, have, at this point of time, has not been in the form of DCBs. Not, I think, not even one percent of the stimulus announced was in the form was intended to, to boost uh, demand side, uh, to boost the demand side actually. So, I think DCBs are the DCBs or the direct cash payments are the way ahead. but the question to be answered is of course how do we finance the direct cash payments and yeah. there are actually so, a lot of ways two ways the two ways that i can think of uh, that uh, these solutions can be financed is you know one by raising tax uh, which would be uh, very difficult given this uh, pandemic i mean because people are also learning uh, earning less so maybe you could you know tax the rich but in india how much can you tax the rich i mean you've already taxing the rich to death but uh, another way to uh, do this is to uh, you know finance it through debt so the government can take a debt do you have anything more to say about it richard yes akash of course and i think you missed one of the possible solutions that the governments have used in the past to finance oh wow that's a devil. that's a devil 
yes and that is increasing the money supply in, in the economy which generally has always led to very bad outcomes and especially when it spirals down and causes uh, hyperinflation you know germany you know venezuela you know all these countries <laughs> there was hyperinflation and we know what happened they just had to reissue new currencies or or take up other other foreign currencies as their own currencies so coming to the question though there are other problems also that i feel should be addressed for example see because uh, developing countries in, can borrow in their own currencies at low interest rates most of these countries have used fiscal and monetary policies to finance the health response and provide relief but in case of developing countries they face massive constraints on their ability to do whatever it takes all right firstly of course uh, raising taxes printing money or borrowing are limited and because of the prohibitively expensive borrowing that most developing countries face in the international market uh, they the international community has to play some role basically as you may understand when one takes a loan from an international from the international community it's not just the debt that they are facing they also face a lot of forex risk which developing countries uh, generally tend to avoid in because in times of crisis the values of the currencies in which they have borrowed generally tends to go upwards another uh, thing is leakage in when they announce such stimulus so in most developing countries the lion's share of public health spending goes to the rich and the smallest to the poor for example in india 33% of it goes to the rich rich is 20% actually and 8% to the poorest wow so that's, most these- that's one powerful uh- uh you know uh, basically data against redistribution yes and uh, most of the spending goes to hospitals of course which are located in urban areas whereas the poor live in rural areas and the especially for india's case for example the poor's main link with health system is through phcs the primary health clinics but these are you know very under equipped under staffed and are infamous for poor service we know that a lot of there's lot of absentees in phcs in india and i think the irad statistics that about health the health workers in phcs are absent about 40% of the time so thus in addition to facing the difficulties in financing the coronavirus response developing countries like india face substantial fiscal policy challenges from leakage and that is of course one thing that one needs a thing one needs to consider hmm so basically we come to this conclusion richard that you know dcbs are distortionary so direct cash uh, benefit or you could say direct cash transfer is any any kind is, of any yeah. kind of response at this point uh, definitely, definitely. but it's still the it's still the best the, uh, response that we have got so either the government can just uh, you know uh, stay put do nothing or can uh, the best thing that it can do is maybe you know give some sort of a relief by uh, directly transferring cash to maybe all its people uh, but yeah as we saw the indian government took the other route but uh, one good thing that i think that did come out of it and the credit where it's due there were reforms there were some reforms definitely uh, one uh, uh, major reform was uh, reform in agriculture where the government decided to you know basically uh, repeal the eca which was the essential commodities act and then 
the apmc uh, monopsony was also broken across india we don't really have much time to talk about it uh, and we'll talk about it in maybe some further episodes but uh, definitely there's something that i think and there's again uh, another conversation going on on labor laws across the countries after uh, uh, mp and up did some reforms or uh, if i might say that just uh, up just decided to uh, cancel all the central labor laws uh, except a few yes uh, definitely so, yeah I so think what is a new conversation to... is something that you know we all three of us can agree on that there's a new conversation happening and uh, that's that's certainly something which is good and as the uh, old adage goes never waste a crisis and maybe exactly. maybe something exactly. good would come out of it so let's end this episode on that optimistic note see ashina do you have anything to add well yeah it makes sense to me too it seems obvious that a major supply side stimulus isn't very sensible if there isn't sufficient demand for it indeed uh, thanks for coming over uh, to our podcast srinath it was a pleasure hosting you yeah thank you akash glad to be here too it was a genuinely interesting discussion and lot of fun thank you again